All right. So, you're in London, England. You're on the subway. It's not going to work. Okay. Uh, and so, yep. And so you're on the subway, the underground. Yes, well, that's right. I, well, never mind. And so uh, when you get off, it will always tell you, mind the gap, right? The little thing, mind that gap, because they don't want you to drop into that little space between the end of the underground car and the, and the sidewalk. They don't want you to go to Hades, okay? All right? So you're sitting there, and you're, you know, you're, you're supposed to mind the gap. When it comes to the Gospels, you also have to mind a gap. You have to mind a gap between the time of the event and the time when the event is recorded in a Gospel. And scholars who work with this skeptically really make a lot of this gap. They, uh, they play it up because the distance between the event and the writing of a Gospel runs anywhere from about 30 to 60 years, depending on when you think the synoptic gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when you think John was written. Most people put that at the end of the first century. Jesus died somewhere in 30. In fact, last night at the debate, how many of you were at the debate last night? Just out of curiosity. Okay, good, about 10% of you. The rest of you, where were you? Anyway, and so um, and how many of you were at a high school football game last night? Oh, not as many as I thought. Okay, all right. Football isn't doing as well in Texas as I thought it was. Anyway, so, so you've got this gap, and the argument is something happened significantly between the time of the event and the time of the gap. So how do you deal with that? Well, you've got three things that stand in that gap. You've got eyewitnesses. You've got their memory. And you've got what's called orality, how they talked about what they remembered and saw. And the argument that goes from the skeptical side goes, you know, person A tells person B, tells person C, tells person D, tells person E, tells person F, tells person G. It's what we call, uh, it's what we call the telephone game. That's what it's compared to. I like the way they call it, what they call it in Australia. They call it Chinese whispers because Chinese whispers is really cool. And so, you know, everyone wants to know a secret. So you tell this thing, and the argument is, the story you get at the end is not what you had at the beginning. And I want to deal briefly with the gap before I deal with my major topic, which are the differences that you see between events within the text that also are a basis of challenge. There were two things that were challenged last night. One is this gap. The second thing was what he called discrepancies. So we're going to try and deal with both of these in what I'm going to say. First thing deals with this gap. And the gap argument goes, as I said, it just, you just tell the story, it's freewheeling, people can do whatever they want with it. I want to make one point about eyewitnesses, one point about memory, and one point about orality. So first, let's deal with eyewitnesses. The claim is, is that eyewitnesses don't remember stuff very well. Okay, they don't, they don't remember the details. There was even an illustration used last night that um, I first encountered when I was at a presentation that John Dominic Cross and chairman of the Jesus Seminar did, and uh, I got to respond, and it was about an experiment that was done in relationship to the Challenger disaster, and the argument was they brought in students from Emory University right after the Challenger disaster, asked them, where were you, what were you wearing, how did you hear about it, all those kinds of things, had them fill out a questionnaire. They brought them back three years later 
on the bad premise that they were seniors then because people don't go through school in four years anymore. And anyway, uh, and they brought them in, and they gave them the same questionnaire, same answers. Then they compared the answers, and with about half the sample, the answers of the three years down the road differ from the original answers, but they didn't tell them which they answered when. And when they did the comparison, the students were drawn to their answers three years later versus their immediate memory. And the argument is memory leaks. So even if you have eyewitnesses and you have memory, you can't trust it. That's the argument. Happened for about half the sample. Now, of course, what that comparison ignores is the 50% who got it right. Okay, that's one thing that it ignores. The other thing that it ignores is it is a sample about individual memory versus corporate memory. It's one thing to ask one person to remember what happened. It's another thing to gather a group of people who experienced the same thing and ask them to share what they remember corporately about it. That actually works as a check and balance. That almost never comes up in these discussions. So my point about memory and eyewitnesses and eyewitness leaking is, one, what kind of detail are we talking about? Is it peripheral detail or is it the gist? I'm going to talk about gist a lot today. And then secondly, um, are we dealing with something that one person is remembering? Are we dealing with something that a lot of people experienced at the same time that was a part of corporate memory? Because another element, and this feeds into the orality part, is that um, the orality part that we're dealing with in the church are stories that are being retold in a church context with apostolic oversight in Jerusalem in our major areas, Antioch, Ephesus, that kind of place. So this is not just random passing on a story from one person to another. It's an overseen story that's being passed on from one person to another. All those things factor in to make the gap more memorable. The last point I want to make about the gap is this, that we may debate whether certain details are remembered properly or not. That might legitimately happen as people remember stuff, whether they remember it right. But the core things that we're talking about, the things that people are invested in, in fact, this is one of the things about the Challenger disaster. Emory students have no investment in whether they get into a space shuttle or not and go out into space. There's nothing personally invested in that. It's just the raw traumatic experience. So when I got up to do my rebuttal to John Dominic Crossan at SMU, when he gave this illustration, I said to him, I wonder if we ran that test for the astronauts who end up in that, who end up in that space shuttle or something like it, if the results would be the same. And the fact is, studies have been done that talk about investment in relationship to, to memory, and the more you have invested in what you're remembering, the more likely you are to remember it well. So, so those are all features of what we're dealing with. So we've got this gap. We've got the issue of memory. We've got the issue of orality. We've got the issue of eyewitnesses. It's a corporate memory. It's being passed on with oversight. That's important. And we also have the idea that this corporate memory that's being passed on with oversight is coming from people who experienced what took place. Last point, next to last point I want to make on this. It makes a lot of difference what we're talking about being remembered. Are we talking about the central thing or not? It's one thing to ask a witness how many people saw the accident, what was someone wearing when the accident happened, et cetera, versus did a car accident happen? Okay, makes a big difference. So it's one thing to ask the question, 
you know, how many people were sitting at the, at the entrance to the tomb? How many women went out to the tomb? Those kinds of questions. First, was the tomb empty? Okay, get the point that I'm making? There's a central thing that's going on that really is the core memory. If that happened, then the significance of that event needs to be talked about, regardless of what happens and the details going on around it. So that's an important part of the discussion as well. I want to make that point about eyewitnesses because the point that needs to be made for eyewitnesses for a skeptic to be able to make their point is to say the tomb wasn't empty. There was, there was, something, going, there was something else going on. Uh, the body was never really absent. Find me a body then. You know, those kinds of points. That's the really important thing. Now, the final point I want to make about the gap. When we talk about the core theology that's wrapped up in the gap when it comes to the New Testament, the core theology is, is that God vindicated Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Michael Cohn is going to talk a lot more about this, but I just want to make this point in reference to Paul because we're dealing with this time gap of 35 to 60 years. In fact, if you were at the debate last night, Bart Ehrman was going, 60 years! You know, he's trying to really drive the point home how long a time this is. Okay, and how much can happen in that gap? Let's think about that gap a second. Let's not think about when the Gospels were written. Let's think about the theology that's preached in the Gospels, the core content of that theology, which is that God raised Jesus from the dead and vindicated him. So, like Chris Berman, we're going to have to work our way back, 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 back to the truth. All right, so here we go. All right, so we're 60 years down the road. Our first Gospels were written about 35 years down the road. Our first Pauline epistles that are teaching this theology are written somewhere around 20, 25 years after these events. Okay, but keep coming. Because Paul's experience takes place within a year and a half of what we're talking about. Our gap is shrinking. And so we're within a year and a half, but it's even better than that. Because when Paul is converted on the Damascus Road, he has to have heard that theology in order to process what happens to him, which means that the message that he's dealing with isn't coming from the time of when Jesus appears to him. It comes from the time of the preaching that he heard from the apostles in order to be able to process that experience. So our gap is shrinking, 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 shrinking. Remember one other thing. Paul is persecuting the church in the interim from the time of his conversion until the time before. That's when he's hearing this message. He knows what happened in Jerusalem. He knows what the Jewish view is against Jesus when he has that experience. And lo and behold, look what's happened to our gap. Our gap has gone from being 60, 60 years all the way down to 18 months, a year, okay? Now, granted, you've got to be an Olympic athlete to jump over 60 years of gap, okay? You've got to be good at the triple jump, jump to get there. But I think it's quite possible to do the little leap that is 18 months to a year. That's what happens to our gap. Our core theology that feeds into the New Testament at the central event tied to Jesus Christ is literally an event virtually on top of itself. And by ancient standards, that's amazing. 
Okay? That was just the introduction. Okay? All right. Now, my time starts now. Precision and accuracy. Precision and accuracy. Dealing with differences in the Gospels. That's what I want to talk about. Sometimes you hear, as you did last night, the claim that the reason we can't trust what's in the Gospels and that we can't trust the reliable report that's in the Gospels about what happened earlier is because all those discrepancies. How can you trust such messy, sloppy witnesses? They don't get the story right. How can you trust the story? That's exactly where Bart Ehrman began last night. He began by saying, you can trust that the new, you can, you can, we can all agree that the New Testament teaches that the followers of Jesus believe Jesus to be divine. We can believe that. Okay? But that's what the evangelists believe. That's what the writers of the New Testament believe. That doesn't mean that Jesus said it. Now, there's a little proverb people live with. Where there's smoke, there is fire. Okay? Where there's smoke, there is fire. The question is, Why would the disciples even go there if Jesus didn't teach it? That's the core question. Look at the trouble that you bring yourself in if you claim Jesus to be divine and vindicated by God and at the center of the program of God. If all he did going around was saying, you need to live more faithfully with God, like a prophet. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Where did that belief come from? makes much more sense to think that that belief went all the way back to Jesus who generated it because it is a mutation on Jewish theology. The Jewish theology believe there is only one God. No one shares their glory with him. No one. Oh, we might have certain angelic transcendent beings who make it into heaven. There might be the righteous who sit with God in heaven But no one sits on God's throne with God, equal to God. That doesn't happen in Judaism. But that's what the Christian church was saying about Jesus Christ. The Greco-Roman gods, the Greco-Roman gods, there there are lots of human beings who get elevated to the status of divinity. Caesar, Augustus, they get elevated to this status. That's true. But if you think about the pantheon of the gods, when you think about the pantheon of the gods, just think about a hall of fame. Okay, okay. so we're in Canton, Ohio. We're in Cooperstown, New York. We're in the Religious Hall of Fame. And when Augustus and Caesar make it into the Pantheon, what they are being told is, what they, what's being said is, your virtue is so great, you ruled us like a god. And they go into the Pantheon, but they go into, how can I say this, room 55. Okay, they're in the Pantheon at the bottom. That's not what happens to Jesus in Christianity. It's not like the Greco-Roman examples. When Jesus goes into the pantheon that is the theology of the Christian church coming out of Judaism, he doesn't go into room 55. He goes into room 1. He's there at the top with God. He doesn't make it just barely into the pantheon, a human who makes it just barely into the divine world. He goes to the top of the pyramid. That's unusual. That's where the mutation is. Okay, but for any of that to be true, anything that I've just said, we've got to make sense out of the differences that we have in the material. And here is the point of the entire rest of my time, and it goes like this. We have lots of parallels in the Gospels where we're telling the same story, but we get different details. 
And that's a problem for some people. For skeptics, you almost get the formula that difference equals contradiction. Everything that I'm about to say to you now is designed to challenge that idea. That difference doesn't necessarily equal contradiction. Okay? And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to talk about variation in the details of how a story is told. But the gist of the story remains constant. And the core point that you're dealing with out of the story comes out of the gist. Okay? That's the premise that we're dealing with. But the proof is in the pudding. Okay, I like slogans. Okay? Let me say it another way. The devil or the angel is in the details. Okay? So do we have a devil in the details or do we have an angel in the details? That's the question. Okay, so if you want to take this heavenly journey with me, uh, welcome aboard. So here's what we're saying. We're saying that the parallels tell the same story, but with different details. There's variation in gist. Difference does not equal contradiction. How do I know that? Now, I could say, the Bible tells me so, okay? And to a certain extent, that's true. But I'm not talking about the Bible as an inspired document telling me so. I'm going to show you by the way the Bible handles its stories. It actually intentionally does this. And it's an important thing to appreciate about the biblical material. So let's deal with an example. And I love leading off with this example. You know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at a screen that isn't showing our slides. So give me a second here. Hold on. Ah. Okay, that's much better, isn't it? Okay, all right. So, I have a wonderful example in the book of Acts of what orality looks like when it's written down. It is the conversion of Saul, Paul. It appears three times in Acts. In Acts 9, in Acts 22, and in Acts 26. Now, the beauty of this example is is that there are certain things we don't need to debate about it. That all three of these tellings are coming from the same author. Okay? He is retelling the story for us. So we are watching one person rehandle the same event. That's important. And when you look at that rehandling, and you look at the fact that this is the same author, and he takes the time to tell this story three times, what we see is... The core is the same, but the details differ. But they don't differ in such a way that it takes away from the core of the story. That's the important point. So, for example, in these retellings, and I'm going to move quickly, in the second telling of the story in Acts 22, the noon is specified as the time of day, although nothing was said about the time of day in the original appearance. There's a point made about the intensity of the brightness in the second telling that doesn't exist in the first telling. There's more detail about some of what happened when Jesus appeared to Saul than you get in the first telling. But you don't have any depiction of a vision to Ananias that the first telling told you. Okay? Or let's flip to the third telling. In the third telling of the story, there's no mention of the fact that Paul went blind because of the intensity of the light even though the other two versions tell you that. And there is no mention of Ananias at all in the third telling, even though he's in the first two tellings. So my point here is, here's the same author 
retelling the story over and over again as we move through the narrative. He's giving us different versions of the story, some of which include the complete appearance or disappearance of key figures who are in some tellings and not in other tellings at all. So my point is, is that when you work with these stories in the retelling, you're going to get different details. That happens. But the core point of the story in all three tellings is the same. Paul was going on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to persecute the church. By the time he got to Damascus, he was in a different ideological spot. How's that for a gist point? All right? He was in a different place than when he left Jerusalem because of his encounter with Jesus. And he was ready for a different mission. And he had a different message. And those letters that, that he had from the high priest that he was going to arrest and persecute Christians, he didn't execute. He didn't execute them because something happened to him on the road. That's an example. Now, sometimes it's important to understand when working with tradition that certain stories may have known their background. Here's what I mean by this example. By the time we get to John's gospel and he tells the story of the upper room in John 13 to 17, okay, the upper room discourse, there is no last supper in John. Now, does that mean that John was completely unaware that there was such a thing as the last supper? Does John have a different theology from the other gospels because they tell the story of the last supper and he doesn't? Is he intending by omitting that to suggest that the Last Supper has no meaning for him in his theology and that he has a different theology than the writers of the synoptics? That's very, very unlikely. Why? For a couple of reasons. One, he's operating in a major church locale. He's probably in the area of Ephesus. He is aware of the tradition that has been circulating. Whether he's aware of the three Gospels that we have or any one of the three Gospels, he's aware of the tradition. If you look at John chapter 6 where Jesus says, you know, you've got to munch on my body and swallow my blood. Very literal, but that's basically the way he said it. Okay? You know he's alluding in one way or another to what became uh, the Lord's table. And the Lord's table, of course, comes from the Last Supper. That tradition is circulating through the churches in a major way, perhaps in such a major way that he no longer feels compelled to mention that event. So omission of mention doesn't mean omission of historicity or that the event didn't happen if you're thinking about how the tradition functions vis-a-vis how a gospel writer is dealing with. What I'm, what I'm doing with you is I'm going to take you through different kinds of examples that show different kinds of things. I'm trying to show you the depth that history has and the way in which it works in a variety of ways which means that when you just simply kind of in a one-level, one-dimensional way compare text to one another, there are lots of things you may be leaving out because history has depth. It's three-dimensional. It's not one-dimensional. Another example. Let's think about the parable of the soils on this principle of orality, which is that you get variation, but you have gist. You know the parable of the soils. It's about the seed that lands in four different locations. And these, the impact of these locations is interpreted differently between the various Gospels. So, and I'm just going to compare two of them. This parable is actually told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to use Mark and Luke. On the road, the seed that lands on the road. Mark says, Satan takes away the word. Luke says, devil takes, away, takes the word away from their hearts. Said differently, different details. 
but I think the same thing is being said. Look at the next one. In rocky ground, in Mark, they received the word with joy, but tribulation and persecution caused them to fall away. In Luke, they receive it with joy, they have no root, they believe for a while, and when temptation comes, they fall away. Okay? Again, variation in detail, just doing the same thing. Thorns in Mark. They hear, and the cares of the world, the delight of riches, and the desire for other things chokes the ability to bear fruit. In Luke, they're choked. The seed is choked by cares, riches, and pleasure of this life. And then he explicitly says the fruit does not mature, something that Mark doesn't say. But are they going different places? No, they're saying the same thing. Last one, good soil. Mark, different yields, 30, 60, 100-fold. In Luke, he simply is more descriptive. Hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bring forth fruit with patience. No discussion of variation of yield, but discussion of the fact that only the fourth soil gets to maturity, produces fruit. This is the deal that we're dealing with. We're getting parallels in which details differ, but the gist of the story is doing the same thing. The core thing, the important thing, is presented uh, in a core kind of way. Another example, the healing of the centurion slave. The difference here is actually a pretty significant one. In Matthew, we have a direct conversation portrayed as taking place between the centurion and Jesus. In Luke, the centurion never meets and has a direct conversation with Jesus. Everything that happens, happens through two sets of emissaries. They don't meet face to face. So what in the world is going on here? In both cases, the same healing takes place. In both cases, there are very similar things said in the exchanges that take place, whether I've got the emissary involved or the centurion involved. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's the point. That's, I have not heard such faith in Israel. Okay? Same response, different groups. What's going on here? We actually deal with this ourselves. Let me give you an example of the emissary versus face-to-face conversation. When the press secretary gets up and speaks in Washington, D.C., and that little sign is above his head, White House, you know, and the report goes, the White House said today. Okay, first of all, think about that. Do houses talk? All right? But once you get past that problem, all right, all right, and you get through the literary representation of what's going on there, okay, We don't care who the press secretary is at the White House. In fact, I bet most of us don't even know his name. But we do care when he speaks. Why? Because he represents the president. And the White House is speaking when he speaks. At least that's how we view it. Okay, until he gets pressed and the president says, that was my press secretary, that wasn't me. All right? But the point is, we implicitly understand that when the press secretary speaks, he's speaking on our behalf. And that actually was an ancient principle of what was called the shaliach, the sent one, the sent uh, messenger, who steps in and represents someone. So much so that Jesus could say of his disciples, if they hear you, they hear me. Okay? So what's happening in this difference? What we call a literary collapse or a simplification. This is something Matthew does in lots of places. 
his story is shorter, simpler, and more compact than in the parallel in Mark or in Luke. He often compacts the story and simplifies it. So what does he do? The messengers were the messengers message is represented by what it is the centurion said. It's as good as the centurion speaking to Jesus. He simplifies the story. Healing's the same. What's said is the same. One story, now listen to this, this will stretch you a little bit. One story is more precise than the other, but both are accurate. The one generating the event is the centurion. That's where the accuracy is coming from. But the more precise details are in the Lucan version of the sending of the emissary. Now, sometimes this is called harmonization. And there are four-letter words, and then there are four-letter words. Okay? And for a lot of skeptics, harmonization is a bad word. It's a four-letter word. You don't harmonize between the Gospels. But in this case, I think what you're doing is a very realistic, culturally grounded summarization of what's going on at both a literary level and in a cultural level in terms of storytelling. And it's not, it's not so much harmonization as it's understanding how cultures tell stories sometimes and how they do it in a compact space when you're trying to tell a lot of incidents in a short period of time. Okay, keep going. More examples. What I am saying to you is, is that you've got to think through the depth of history. When an event is happening and it's going along, you've got to be able to wrestle with the fact that that this event is, is rolling along and there are lots of kinds of options about how it's told. And so you sit there and you think about how this is unfolding. And the way I like to illustrate this is to talk about how we use terms. And the, and the illustration I like to use is the first big war of the, of the 20th century. You know what it was originally called? The Great War or sometimes the War to End All Wars. You know what we call it regularly? World War I. Why do we call it World War I? Duh, because there was World War II. Okay? We're describing the same thing even though we're naming it differently because the frame that we're using to describe the name is reflective in one case of what it was called at the time and in another case what it came to be called because of what happened later. Okay? That difference in time perspective doesn't impact what the event was, but it does introduce choices as to how I talk about it. I can talk about an event in terms of how it was experienced at the time, or I can talk about an event how it was experienced in light of what came out of it. Okay? And both, this is the point, both perspectives are historical, both perspectives are accurate. Let me give you an example that you'll get. How many of you have, been wa- have watched a football game? Okay, you watch football? All right. I have to have a sports illustration somewhere in a lecture. So, um, so how many of you watched a football game in which one team is leading another by a significant score, and then all of a sudden, say, in the second half, a whole series of things happens where the team behind gets some breaks. They get some turnovers or something like that. And the announcer will say at the time, is Mojo changing? Okay? He's feeling the pull and the momentum of the game switching, that something's happening between the competitors. Now, you actually don't know whether Mojo has changed or not until you play out the game. 
Okay? When you play out the game, all of a sudden you have a refractory capability of looking back on what's happening. And you can look back and you can say, you know what? Those series of turnovers in the third quarter were the turning point in the ball game. Mojo changed. You might sense it when it happens, but you don't know it till it's over. Okay? And what I'm showing you is history has a flexibility and a refractory character to it. It has depth. And I, as an author, have choices. Do I talk about it in terms of the way it was experienced at the time? Or do I talk about it upon further review? Okay, as I'm able to look back and see what's happened to it. All that is historical. All of it. Any step of it along the way. Okay, it's just historical from a different angle. Another example I think you'll get that's quick. You go to a mystery movie. What's the goal when you sit down in a mystery movie other than to have popcorn? Okay, all right. What's the goal of mystery? Who done it? All the way through, you're trying to figure out, you know, did the butler do it? Did the beautiful lady do it? Did the old man do it? You know, I don't know why they have it that way. You know, why don't, can't they, did the butler do it? Did the young guy do it? Did the old lady do it? Never works that way. So anyway, so, you, so you're going through and you're doing this story. And you're wrestling with it. And you're trying to figure out who did it. Well, as you're going through it, you're making one set of assessments. But let's say, hey, I really like that mystery movie. That was cleverly done. I'm going to go back and watch it again. The second time through, when you go through it, because you know what the whole thing looks like, as you're going through it, you say, oh, you know, I missed that the first watch. I missed that. I missed that. You know, if I had caught that, I'd have known who'd done it. Same material, different perspective, different angle, all still dealing with the same narrative. That's how history works. It has depth. It has depth. Okay, another example, Last Supper. The Last Supper, you may not be aware of this, but we actually have four tellings of the Last Supper, and we have it in two distinct versions. Okay, there's the way Matthew and Mark talk about the Last Supper, and there's the way Luke and Paul's rendering of the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, those are the four places that are told. And they're in two groupings. Matthew and Mark tell it the same way. Luke and 1 Corinthians tell it the same way. And this is one that I think is fun because it shows how this depth works. In Mark and in Matthew, when Jesus comes to the cup, he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Okay? When Luke and 1 Corinthians says, by the way, don't do this with a red-letter Bible. Okay? Red Letter Bible communicates to you, you've got the exact words of Jesus here. Okay? That's doing two things at once, neither of which is good. The first is it suggests that the words of Jesus somehow may be more inspired than the rest of the Scripture. That's a problem. But the second thing that it does is it suggests you're always dealing with the exact citation and the very words of Jesus, when sometimes what you may be getting is a paraphrase, a summary, an expansion of making explicit what's implicit, a variety of things that might be going on. Here's, and this is an example of one of those. What Luke and 1 Corinthians say is, this is the blood of the new covenant. Okay? That one word is doing a lot of work. What Luke and 1 Corinthians, the version in Luke and 1 Corinthians are doing is telling you which covenant we are specifically talking about And it has to be the new covenant because the Abrahamic covenant 
the idea of a seed coming to the earth is already taken care of in Jesus' birth as well as the nation of Israel. The idea of a Davidic covenant, that there's a hope of a king one day who will bring shalom to the earth, is already established by the fact that Jesus is there. So there's only one covenant of promise left to be realized when he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. He's talking about the establishment of the covenant on behalf of God's people. That's got to be the new covenant. Now here's the fun part of this. Which version, the Matthew and Mark version, or the Luke and 1 Corinthians version is the more precise, the more accurate. And now I'm having fun. Okay? It depends. Depends on what you're asking. Mark and Matthew are probably giving us what Jesus said. These are the exact words. It's more precise in terms of what Jesus said. But Luke and 1 Corinthians are more precise about what Jesus meant. Get the difference? Okay? One is what Jesus said, but those, when he, when he says covenant, and he is referring to the only covenant left to be fulfilled, and another writer brings out what is explicitly what's implicit in what's being said and says new covenant, he's giving you more precisely the meaning by changing the wording and making explicit what's implicit. That's also historical. There's nothing inaccurate about that move. Okay? That's fascinating. Let's go to a couple more. Okay? The calming of the sea. Okay? One point, Jesus calms the sea. You know, uh, he walks on the water. Okay? That kind of thing. And they're nervous about it. He's walking on the water. And, you know, this is the scene where Peter comes out to him. And Peter does his own little water acting act until... You know, things stir up, he gets nervous, he looks away, and all of a sudden he's baptized. Okay? All right? All right, this is where baptism came from. Okay? Okay, just kidding. So anyway, so, so we've got this, and we've got two very different explanations at the end. They can hardly be more different, in fact. In one version in Mark 6.52, it says, The disciples did not understand because their hearts were hardened. Okay, that doesn't look very positive to me. Okay, in fact, this reflects what Ben Witherington says about the disciples in Mark. They are the disciples. Okay, <laughs> oftentimes they're wrestling to get it. All right, on the other side, we've got the idea that, and he got it, they got in the boat and they worshiped him. Okay, now I look at those two things on the surface and I go, yep, those are pretty different. Okay, I got hard hearts on the one hand, I got worship on the other. What in the world is going on? Okay, now you've got to open up and think about depth, the depth of history. The disciples were shocked that what was happening was happening because they didn't get who Jesus was at the time, and he was surprising them by what he was doing. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand how this event could be happening. But on the flip side, coming down the road, what came out of that event is, when they got in the boat, they worshipped him. Okay? And it's the transformation. One author's emphasizing one aspect of the experience. This is what was going on at the time. The other is emphasizing the other aspect of the experience. This is what grew out of it. Okay? Even though on the surface it looks like a discrepancy that can't be put together, in fact, it can fit together very nicely 
This is one of the events that transformed how the disciples thought about Jesus. Transfiguration, another kind of difference. Mark 9 says, took place six days later. Luke says, oh, about eight days. Okay? No big deal. Now, the resurrection one, uh, where we get only Mary being highlighted as a woman's witness in one version, and we've got more than Mary in the other synoptics, choice of how many witnesses count. Okay? Mike may be doing more with this stuff later. Let's go to some other stuff. Okay? I'm almost out of time, so i got to really hustle. Okay? On wording. Wording, as I've already suggested, doesn't always match. When, G- when Peter confesses who Christ is near Caesarea Philippi in the middle of all the Gospels, Mark 8, Luke 9, uh, Matthew 16. In Mark, he says, you are the Christ, period, end of story. In Luke, he says, you are the Christ of God. And in Matthew, he says... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is CNN. Okay? All right? Three very different answers. What they share is Peter's recognition that Jesus is the Christ as opposed to the public that thinks that Jesus is some kind of prophet. If Jesus is the Christ, he's at the hub of what God is doing in salvation. That's what he's confessing, and that's what Jesus can build his understanding of the church on. That's the rock on which he can work. But different wording. Same gist. Another example, sometimes brought up, Jesus' sayings on the cross. This is one Bart Ehrman likes. He wrote a book about, about Jesus and the wording in the Gospels, and he used this example to show they're hopelessly different. Argument. In Mark, Jesus is struggling with going to the cross. So when he hangs on the cross, he cites Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's in despair. But in Luke, he's trusting and confident. So when he's on the cross, he cries out, Into your hands I commit my spirit, language from Psalm 31.5. Again, very different. Very different portraits of Jesus. And Bart asks, how can this be the same scene and the same set of expectations and the same portrait? Answer, easy. Because this is what Bart doesn't tell you. In Matthew, while we're talking, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Later on, in the same Mark and account, it says, and Jesus cried out a second time. If you read these two events in parallel columns to one another, which is something he often espouses,